Okay, turn to John chapter 18, verse 28. In the new church, we're going to, uh, we'll have separation between us and the kids, so we have to make do with what we got. So we'll just have to all be patient and... Always bring stuffies. <laughs> bring stuffies. <laughs> stuffies and gravel. <laughs> Alrighty. Well, let's stand and read the Gospel of John. Chapter 18, starting at verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium. And it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the Praetorium, so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Therefore Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to the, your law. The, Jew, the Jews said to him, We are not permitted to put anyone to death. So to fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? And Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and your chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king? And Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. And Barabbas was a robber. Let's pray. God, I just thank you for your word, and um, thank you for this new transition that we're at, that we could... Uh, use this place to, to worship you and turn it into a place where um, your word could be proclaimed even though it's normally a place of business Lord, it's now a place for your word to ring true and I'm just uh, grateful that we have this opportunity uh, may it go well downstairs for the people taking care of the kids and uh, that even though they're going to be loud and in our, in our face Lord to some degree that we still could focus on what you have to say to us because your word's important, we pray for this in Christ's name Amen So last time we left off in John, we saw Jesus being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And you remember that upon his arrest, he was first taken to Annas, uh, who had been the former high priest in Jerusalem. And the reason he was taken to Annas, and not Caiaphas, who was the high priest, was the Jews actually recognized Annas as being the most powerful and influential man in Jerusalem. And we did talk about the reasons for that last sermon, so if you, if you can't remember, you can listen to last message, and we, we covered cover the details on that. But because his opinion was so important, they wanted to bring uh, Jesus to Annas first. But John tells us here in verse 28 that after his initial interrogation by the Jews, he was next taken to the Romans. And it says there in verse 28, uh, they, they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the Praetorium, and it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the Praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. 
Now the Praetorium was the headquarters for the Roman governor. And the Roman governor at the time was Pontius Pilate. Now as a governor of Judea, uh, Pilate's natural home was actually in Caesarea. If you look on a map, Caesarea is on the Mediterranean coast and it's northwest of Jerusalem. And so he would, he would normally serve as, uh, as his, uh, reside there in Caesarea as the governor of Judea. But when he traveled to Jerusalem, he needed headquarters to stay in. And those headquarters were uh, the Praetorium in Jerusalem. Denise and I experienced this uh, in uh, Edinburgh. Uh, the, the queen actually has a residence at Buckingham Palace in London. And when Denise and I went on holidays a number of years ago, we went for a walk of the streets of Edinburgh. We came to a place called Holyrood or Holyrood. And it's actually where the Queen stays when she comes to Scotland. And she stays in this palace and gated community and whatnot. So kind of like the Queen lives in London, when she comes to Scotland, stays in Edinburgh at Holyrood. So did Pontius Pilate live in Caesarea and then uh, come to the Praetorium in Jerusalem to serve there. Now the reason why he was in, was in uh, Jerusalem at this time was because it was Passover. And Passover had an explosion of people, right? Tens of thousands of people would come from all over the, the known world to worship at the Passover. And the, Jerusalem's population would just multiply in huge, huge quantities. And so Pilate didn't want a riot. He didn't want anything to outbreak that he couldn't control. Because if he had to answer to Caesar for unrest in Jerusalem, it'd be, uh, his life could be on the line potentially. Or if not that, at least he'd maybe, maybe get expelled from his position as governor. And apparently, according to historical books, he didn't have a good reputation with Caesar already. He had a lot of unrest that had already happened in Jerusalem. So the last thing he wanted was another one uh, on his resume. So we learn here that he's in the Praetorium. And Pilate, this would have been a, probably a comfortable place for him, right? He's Roman. It's his, 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 his territory. He would enjoy this place. It's home away from home. Probably very comfortable there for him as the governor. But we learn here that Jews felt opposite to that. The Jews uh, didn't like it at all. It says here that they would thought that if they entered the Praetorium, they would be defiled. They'd be defiled. And they didn't want to be defiled because it was time of Passover. Now, the Jews had come to believe in the oral law, not, not God's law, but their own traditions, that if they entered the places of dwelling, places of Gentiles, they would become ceremonial unclean. And the issue for them is they'd spent the entire week, which was in God's law, being ceremonial cleansed for the preparation of Passover. So because they have this oral tradition, you can't enter a Gentile territory, otherwise you'd be defiled, but God's law says you have to stay clean. They had mixed the two, and so therefore they made this rule up in their head that they couldn't go in to, to take Jesus into Pilate's headquarters. So what they do, they stayed outside. They stayed outside the quarters. Now, it's no coincidence that John records this detail at this point for a specific reason. You see, this is totally, totally ironic that this, the Jews are doing this. And it shows their religious hypocrisy. You see, on one hand, they're making every effort to ensure they would not be ceremonially defiled by entering into the Gentiles' territory. Yet on the other hand, had no issue with the moral defilement they were going to incur and had occurred by trying Jesus unfairly and by wanting to kill him. So it's all about ceremonial purity and defilement, no care for their moral purity or their defilement. And it was just absolutely ironic that this is what's going on. And D.A. Carson actually does a great job of explaining this. Sometimes he turned to the scholars for clarity. And this is what he says. He says, the Jews take elaborate precautions to avoid ritual contamination in order to eat the Passover, 
At the very same time, they are busy manipulating the judicial system to secure the death of him alone who is the true Passover. I mean, that is just unbelievable, but well put by D.A. Carson. But this is a picture of religion at its best. It's full of hypocrisy. You know, Janice and I experience this in our own lives. Uh, when I asked Janice to get married, um, I went to her parents and said, would you give me permission to take your daughter in, in marriage? And they said yes, but her mom said only to get married in the Catholic Church. At the time, I knew nothing about Roman Catholicism. Uh, in my head, I thought Roman Catholicism and Christianity are probably very similar, because I had no experience 10 years ago with the things I do now. And I thought, that's a very interesting comment. And at the time, there was no inclination in my head that we were ever going to get married in a Catholic church. It was going to be at the Evangelical Free Church in Okotoks, for many reasons, but that was just my thought process. So I bought the Catechism, about that thick, written by John Paul II and his cronies, and I read it. And I started reading all the crazy, crazy differences between Catholicism and Christianity. And I actually started to get fearful and panicky. And I said, I basically said like to Janice, under no, no way under God's green earth are we ever having anything to do with the Catholic Church. Now at the time, because of uh, her mom was pressuring us to get the Catholic priest involved, she wanted him to be part of our, our ceremony. I didn't know why, but then I learned in the, in the catechism that because a Catholic priest can install, instill on you per sacraments which blesses your marriage and God recognizes these things. So the priest has power to give you basically blessings from God in your marriage. So I'm reading about all this and I'm like, oh, now I get why she wants it so bad. So we, were look, we went to see uh, Steve, who was the priest at the time here in, in uh, and I did it just to like, find out what he was going to say, even though my head was already, like, I didn't want to be part of the service. So he says to me, we, we had this initial meeting, and then the next day he walks into my gym, unannounced, and just walks in, barges in, interrupts my training session, which ticked me off. But I thought, whatever, I'll deal with it. So I apologized to my clients and went over, and he, he gave me a piece of paper and says, will you sign this? And I read it. He says, it was ten, what, 10 things or something, and at the bottom says, you have to agree to have your children baptized in the Catholic Church, and you have to attend Catholic school, and, and otherwise I can't participate in your ceremony. And I looked at him and said, I will not do any of those things. He said, well, I'm out. I can't participate in your marriage. I said, fine. He walked out the door. Later that day, unbeknownst to me, walked into Janice's classroom and says to her, you are no longer to participate in communion at this school anymore. Okay? That year, just so you know, the Catholic School Division has an award for the most, the person who represents Jesus Christ. That didn't sound good. It doesn't sound, okay, the, the, the Catholic School Board across the whole division has an award for the teacher that most represents Jesus Christ in their, in their reflections and their words and their actions. Janice was nominated and won that year. The whole Catholic School Division. So watch this. Father Steve, he's not even a father, excuse me for that. There's only one father in heaven, and that's God. So Steve walks in and says to Janice, you can't participate in communion because you're not ceremonially pure because of your unwillingness to sign these two ritualistic documents. But you can, um, but at the same year, she wins the most morally pure award you can get in the Catholic Church. And what's interesting about that is it was awesome for me because he removed himself and there was no issue with her mother anymore because it was a done deal. And we got to get married at the Ephraim Church and so on. But you know, um, this is religion at its best in terms of hypocrisy. 
See, what they were so concerned about was our ceremonial cleansing with no concerns of moral issues. Janice's co-workers that year, and still are to this day, that year I knew, I knew her, some of her colleagues were sleep, living common law, sleeping around when they, like, all the time when they weren't even married or common law, or like you had any relationship, just you know, doing whatever, getting drunk on the weekends, and we're living all sorts of moral, morally defiling things according to the scriptures. But Steve did not care one iota about the moral defilements going on because as long as they're baptized and they're going to teach in a Catholic school and their kids are there, they're good with God. And that's religion at its best. And that's hypocrisy. And this is what's exactly going on here with Jesus and the guys. So the Jews are unwilling to enter Pilate's headquarters. And so we, that forces Pilate out to them. He has to come out to them. We pick this up in verse 29. Therefore, when Pilate went out to them and said, What accusations do you bring against this man? And they answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, We are not permitted to put anyone to death to fulfill the word of Jesus which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. I would suggest it was of no surprise to Pilate that Jesus was standing before him. You remember in the garden, the, all the Roman soldiers that showed up? We talked about the, the amount of hundreds of soldiers would have been there. The fact that the Roman soldiers showed up present at the arrest of Jesus suggests that Pilate was already in aware, awareness, awareness of what was going to happen. Because the Jews couldn't, on their own power, tell the Romans to come help them. It would require Pilate's approval. So by the fact that the Romans there, the Jews probably went to Pilate and said, here's our plan and here's what's going to happen. They must have had previous contact. So Pilate would have known up front that they probably wanted Jesus dead. It would be no surprise to him. But if he was going to execute him, he had to have prevalent charges. He had to have realistic charges in place for that to occur under Roman law. So he says to, so he says to um, these guys, well, what charges do you bring against him? What accusations do you have against this man? Now, the fact that the, he asked that question would have been absolutely uh, troublesome to the Jews here because, see, they wanted him dead because they thought he was a blasphemer. In the Jewish law, they thought Jesus should die because he claims to be God. But they knew Pilate wouldn't care about their Jewish laws and that the charge of blasphemy would not hold up in Roman court. That's why when they go through this, uh, we'll see this in a second, um, he says later on in verse 35, he says, am I, am I a Jew? Like, am I a Jew? In other words, what do I care about Jewish matters and Jewish uh, proceedings? So they knew this charge wasn't going to stick if it was to charge him for blasphemers. They had to come up with something else. And so Pilate's like, well, Jesus, what are you here for? Like, what's, what's, the, what's the charges against you? So they call him here an evildoer. If this man were not an evildoer, we wouldn't have delivered him to you. Now, Pilate obviously didn't take their ch charges too seriously because of his response in 31. He says, take him and judge him, judge him yourself in your own courts, basically. So if Pilate thought Jesus was a threat, his answer to, at this point would have probably been something like this. Well, give me the specific charges he did to break Roman law. But I suggest that Roman, Pilate's response actually shows that he, um, he wasn't too worried about Jesus and the charges against him. But his response would have deflated the Jews. See, they wanted him nothing more than to, for him to be dead. They would have loved for Pilate to put a rubber stamp on the decision to kill him. But Pilate's response showed he wasn't buying in. But he also, his response forced the Jews to remember once again they were in subjugation to Rome. Because 
in order for them to for them to for him to kill Jesus, it was going to require his approval. And so, therefore, they say to him, "We are not put, permitted to put anyone to death." And that would have been a killer to them, right? I mean, they don't even have the own authority to execute uh, capital punishment in their own land. So they're having to, by saying this, be reminded that they're subject to Rome once again. And would have hated telling Pilate that. Like, these are the prominent Jewish leaders with all the power saying, we need you, Pilate. We can't do this without you. But it's humiliating for them. But the reason why the Jews weren't allowed to perform capital punishment is that right had been taken away from them. Uh, in, in AD 6, when uh, Rome came in and took jurisdiction over the land of Judea, um, Israel was not allowed to execute anymore and have governing authority over capital punishment. So Rome took that right away from them in AD 6. So Jesus was born, I mean, there's different years people think he's born, but let's just say for argument's sake, born in, in zero, right? Before Christ, after AD, right? BC, AD. So let's say he's born in, in zero. Then that's only, he's only six years old when Rome comes in and takes this right away. Now remember, the Roman method of execution is crucifixion. And the Jewish form is stoning. So they're different in the way they would execute. But John reminds us that this is all within God's plan. The fact that Jesus was to die by crucifixion and not stoning was all within God's plan. It says in verse 32, he said this, to fulfill the word of Jesus which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was to die. Now Jesus predicted his own death by crucifixion. In John 3.14, he said this, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Now this incident comes from Numbers, right? Remember Israel is complaining against God, and they, they hate him for the provisions he's given them, and they're grumbling, grumbling, and God sends serpents into the midst of Israel, and they start biting all the people and killing them. And the people come to Moses and cry out to Moses saying, save us, save us. And so God says to Moses, okay, make a, take a standard like a pole, make a stake, put it on the, on the pole and lift it up. And put it, lift it up for the people to see. And whoever looks at the stake will be freed from their, from their stake bites and be healed. So by faith, the Israelites were to look at the serpent for healing which God instituted. And that was called lifting them up. And that's what Jesus says. So as Moses lifted up the serpent, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So he's speaking about him being lifted up, so by faith whoever looks upon him will be saved by God's doing. So he's contrasting these things as being lifted up as a reference to crucifixion. And what's interesting is Zechariah, which Peter quoted in his, his uh, five-minute uh, talk on Israel just a few minutes ago, talked about Zechariah. But look at Zechariah uh, uh, in terms of uh, predicting Jesus being pierced in, uh, by crucifixion, not stoning. It says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as the one mourns for only a child, and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. You know what's amazing about this? This was written hundreds of years before crucifixion, and crucifixion didn't exist in the land when this was written by the prophets. So he's predicting what kind of death Jesus is going to be pierced by, or by, by killed by, which is piercing, which is crucifixion. It's not stoning. And Zechariah, even in his own words, is making these predictions. And Isaiah did the same thing in Isaiah 53, verse 5. So that the scriptures in the Old Testament are loaded with crucifixion references to Jesus, even though stoning was a form of execution. So it's, it's, but again, John reminds us, this is all God's plan. It's not an accident he's standing before Pilate. It's not an accident what's going on. The Jews think they're orchestrating this whole thing and it's all they're doing, but God's like, I'm in full control of everything that's happening to my son right now. 
So after the initial proceedings end, Pilate must have left the room to think through what he heard, because John records in verse 33 that Pilate re-entered the room once again to continue the interrogation. He says there in 33, Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to them, Are you the king of the Jews? Now the reason why Pilate asked if he was the king of the Jews is not given to us in John, but it is recorded in Luke 23. He, he said, the Jewish leaders began to accuse Jesus, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying himself that he himself is Christ a king. So Luke tells us this is what was said, and this is why John records Pilate asking Jesus if he was a king. Now again, the Jews needed to come up with a charge that Pilate would take seriously if he was going to kill him, remember. So what they had to do is, because blasphemy wouldn't hold up in Roman court, they had to paint him as someone who was disobedient to Roman law. So he's a guy that won't pay taxes to Caesar. And what's interesting about that is, when they say that he himself is Christ a king, they're painting him as an insurrectionist. An insurrectionist is like a revolutionary or a troublemaker that's trying to cause trouble against Rome. So when Pilate hears this Roman, this Jewish king is rising up, he's thinking, uh-oh, resurrection. Someone's going to challenge my authority, and he's going to hate that and want to squash that, right? And that's typical in Roman law. I mean, if you want to go up against Caesar, you're going to get executed. And all dictators today, to this day it happens, right? North Korea, execution. Iran, execution. Like, any dictatorship, they'll kill you if you're a threat. And so they want to get Jesus charged for insurrection and someone who's a, a disobedient to Caesar as their charge. Well, what, so, um, yeah, so that's basically the context of what's going on. So, what's Jesus' response? We pick that up in 34. Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? And Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, Well, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would be not handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. You know, I've often heard... Actually, let me rephrase that. In response to Pilate's question of whether or not he was a king, uh, Jesus began to tell Pilate then about the nature of his kingdom. Right, in verse 36 he says, you know, you, you ask if I'm a king? Let me tell you about my kingdom. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as, as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. What Jesus was saying to Pilate was this. You know, Pilate, my kingdom doesn't operate like yours. We're not competing for the same thing here. If I did, then my men would be fighting you and would be using military tactics to establish my kingdom. But my kingdom doesn't care about anything like that. I'm not here for that. I mean, it was obvious, right? When Peter pulled out a sword, he says, put it away, Peter. Don't do that. And even when he swung, he put his ear back on, put Malchus's ear back on. He goes, my kingdom is not like Pilate's. It's not about this. Remember the Acts church? When Saul persecuted the church, two Christians in prison, ripped them out of their homes and killed Stephen? Was there any up fight? Was there anybody take military action against these guys? Not a single finger lifted. Not a single finger lifted. One of the craziest passages in all the Bible, Hebrews 10.34. It says that they had their property seized because of connection to Jesus Christ. 
not one single fighting, and they all accepted it, quote-unquote, joyfully. I mean, this is a real test for my faith. I, every time I think I'm not tied to materialism, and I think I've got money and, and my value in God licked, I ask myself, if someone came into... If someone came in, like a, like, a, like a Pierre Trudeau, or Justin Trudeau, I should say, in like 10 years, and said, if you, if you claim Jesus Christ as king, I'm taking your house. Sandstone, gone, like that. Would I be joyful? Would Jesus and I be like, thank you, God, that which shows we're connected to you? Or would we be absolutely devastated? That's a good question for you, too. If you, want, if you think you've licked this whole, like, where your value comes from, and you're tied to finances and your material wealth, ask yourself, if, you were, if your house was taken from you, would you be joyful, like the Hebrews? That's exactly what it says there. They were joyful when their properties were seized. <laughs> I mean, I stand condemned, okay? So I'm just... But you have to hear that. You have to work through the same issues that I do, right? We're all in the same boat together here. It's a good test for your spiritual walk with the Lord. Because, you know what? We're in the last days. And, uh, I mean, maybe not you and me, but our kids probably are. Or it could be us. So just ask yourself, like, these are possible realities for us as Christian people. But it's no wonder then that Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Because Jesus' kingdom was of the spiritual dimension. He came to set people free from sin and death, restore them to God, and teach them how to live in this world in relationship to Him. And He further describes His kingdom in verse 37, in, in sec, starting at section B, as I would say. <laughs> There's no B in your Bible, but follow me here. Section B of 37. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. You know, I've often heard of people who say of individuals have accomplished extraordinary things. So you might even use this language in your own life. Man, that person was born to do that. So you watch someone play hockey and they're four and five and six and they're just dominating compared to other kids. And like, man, that guy's born to play hockey. Or you see another person like a music, musically and they're like a, a prodigy at seven, eight. You think that kid's born to do this. Or someone's like painting a, a, a picture or has sculpting skills and then an artist. You're like, man, that person's born to do this. Jesus says this, I've, for this reason I was born to testify to truth. <laughs> I mean, what a, what a, I mean, think about that for your own life. Imagine God saying to you and me, your, your purpose for being born was to testify to truth. Jesus himself said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So how do you demonstrate this? Well, by the words he spoke and the way he lived them out in correlation to that. In John 17, verse 6, he says this, I have manifested your name to the men whom you give me out of the world, which is the disciples he's talking about. They were yours and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you've given me is from you, for the words which you gave me I gave to them. In verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, as I am not of the world. You see, Jesus' kingdom and the things he was about were revealed to the people by the truth he spoke, by the words he spoke to them, and the way he modeled those things to them and how he lived them out. See, it wasn't a world about violence, like Pilate would have tried to establish. It was a world that was based on Christian values, morals, and principles and obedience to the way you're to live in relation to God. So Jesus had come to speak truth, and that's what he'd come for. Now, why did he need to speak truth? Well, because it's clear from the scriptures 
He knew that we, right now, and that people in the past and the future, can never come up with truth on our own. Truth is not found inside, inside ourselves, and the world was never going to be able to offer it to us either. And the Bible over and over teaches us that truth comes from God and no one else. Think of the categories of contradiction between the world and Jesus Christ. How does the world say to solve marital problems? How does the world say to solve marital problems versus how God does? Completely different. How, what's the world's view on unforgiveness versus God's view on forgiveness? What's the world's view on how to enter into heaven versus Jesus' teachings on how to enter into heaven? What's the world's view on the permanence of marriage, the sanctity of marriage, and what even constitutes marriage compared to what Jesus teaches? What's the world's view on sexual purity versus what Jesus' is? What's the world's definition of love compared to what Jesus' is? What's the world's definition of how to function in relationships compared to Jesus? How about how to attain peace and what peace looks like? How about the world's view on how to parent your kids versus Jesus? And so on and so on and so on. So while Jesus didn't name these categories before Pilate, this is what he was implying by this statement to him in verse 37. Right? He says, For this reason I've been born, and I've come into the world to testify the truth. Pilate didn't understand it, and so he says to him, What is truth? What is truth? What an important question, and the most relevant question that anyone can ever ask. And it's a church question that we have to face as Genesis House in our community in Okotoks. What is truth is extremely different depending on who you talk to in our culture. And I want to show you something that's currently going on in our community, which may shock you or may not shock you. I don't know what you'll think of this. But um, there's a place called The Nest in Okotoks. It's a place you can work out. And it's a place that you can, uh, different personal trainers go there and they, they pay a rental fee and they hold classes. This is a Facebook post that Janice received because one of her instructors, Janice goes to workout class once a week and uh, a group class and this, this teacher posted this to, for, to attract her students. And apparently her class is packed, is jam-packed with people. This is what they're learning, these women are learning at this class. Hey beauties, uh, sorry I wasn't there to see you all last night. Here's a bit about what I do. I've been working in the healing arts for just about 18 years now. I'm a holder of space. I hold space with my hands for bodies that are broken as an osteopathic practitioner. I hold space for tired nervous systems, for overworked organs, for chronic pain, for headaches, for backaches, for infertility, for whatever ills, yeah. Head to toe, inside and no. When I was 20 years old, I was initiated into the world of shamanism. And I have spent the past 10 years learning how to journey with the guidance of my teachers, guides, ancestors, angels, goddesses, and power of animals. As a shaman, shamanic practitioner, I hold a space of healing with my drum. I hold a space for the soul that is trying to find their way back to being whole. I guide them through soul retrievals, past life regressions, power animal connections, ancestor healing, extra extractions, womb healing, and the deep soul work that it all comes with. As a certified Red Tent Facilitator, I hold space for groups of women to come together in various classes and retreats to reconnect them to their feminine birthright to sit in a healing circle of women. My program includes guided journeys too. Connecting with your power animal. We should have played that last night uh, at the uh, Jeansons. Um, connecting with the ancestors of the land, personal ancestors. 
Connecting negative emotional cords with the Archangel Michael. Complete soul retrieval. Connecting with the elements of earth, air, fire, and water. Connecting with your inner goddesses. Connecting with your soul mirror. Cleansing your chakra system. Connecting with the energy of the tree of life. Embracing the true power of I am. Dancing with the full moon. Releasing the new moon. As a powerful circle of feminine energy, we walk on fire, we dance with the moon, we howl, we laugh, we cry, we release, we meditate, we journey, we heal, we love, we embrace all that we are, and we are truly seen. You know what's interesting, church? Satan is a, an angel of, like he's a, he masquerades as an angel of light. Did you notice the biblical terms in there? Do you know who, cutting negative emotional cords with the Archangel Michael? You know the Archangel Michael who he is in the scriptures? He's God's number one warrior in battle. So Gabriel is usually the messenger for God, and Arch- Michael is his, 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 like his number, probably the number one military commander in the, in the, in the heavens, fighting Satan. Archangel's a, uh, a, a, a warrior. Satan has somehow twisted this, de- made this demonic religion here, and still using God's terms. Did you notice another one at the bottom? Connecting with the energy of the tree of life? The tree of life, I mean, where is that located? The Garden of Eden and in heaven back in Revelation. Another one you might have noticed, look at that, embracing the true power of I am. I didn't put those capitals, I didn't put I am in capitals, she did. I mean, that's exactly what Satan did to Adam and Eve. He says, he says uh, you are nothing without God, or sorry, they were to be taught that with, with God everything was... Their whole value system was in God. And Jesus said, I am, I am, I am. And Satan says, no, no, no. I want you to be the I am. You to be the I am. And she wants us to basically depart completely from God. Stealing Jesus' own definition of himself. And God's own definition of himself to Moses in the burning bush. Like, like three, four thousand years ago. When I think it was four thousand years ago. It's incredible. It's incredible. This is biblical language being adopted in these pagan practices. So what is truth? Pilate asked a really good question. And these classes are full. Here's the thing. like I Don't ever be embarrassed about telling people that Jesus died on the cross. And you think that your, your faith in Christianity sounds like a foolishness. When this is going out there. And these women are buying this stuff. I don't even know how this practically plays out in someone's life. I don't even want to know what that looks like. In a, anyway. I pray for, uh, we have to pray for these people and hope that the Arpex, they'll come to the Arpex Center and they'll receive true healing and know who the true I am is. So we laugh and I laugh and I'm kind of like disappointed, but this is a serious epidemic and women, it's women are just getting deceived into coming into these classes and Satan's got a grip on these people, terrible grip. And she's likely, uh, I wouldn't doubt if she's demonic in terms of, uh, in, uh, um, Depending how far she's sold her soul to Satan, this woman could very well be uh, possessed. I mean, if you're a shaman, shamanic practitioner, you're into witchcraft. I mean, you're fully in. So how do we answer this? Yeah. Oh, it's totally. All right. So what is truth? Jesus says, I've come to testify for the truth. I am truth. Now that's obviously an answer that we believe as Christians. But I want to spend some time approaching this from another angle. See, when you ask, how do you know what truth is? As a Christian, you can approach it different ways. You can approach it archaeologically. You can go through archaeological finds and digs and back up the Christianity from archaeological finds to prove Jesus was, uh, who, was, who he said he was. You can do it historically. 
you can go through and look through history and find that non-Christian people, non-religious people, have actually written texts about the proof that Jesus actually existed. You can, you can talk to, I know a guy named, uh, not personally, but I know of him, who lives in the United States, who uh, is an atheist, agnostic, kind of guy that believes the resurrection actually did take place. And he, uh, he actually tells his, non, his colleagues that Jesus actually did die on the cross and was resurrected. And he says, historically, I can prove it to you through, through ancient literature. He isn't a Christian, but knows he can. I mean, you can, you, can, you can do it in many ways, but I want to take a philosophical approach to it and, and basically help you with two ideas on how to defend truth. And I've said these before, so I apologize if this is a repeat for some of you, but um, it's still worth hearing again, I think. Here's a philosophical approach to truth. Because you and I will get marginalized if we're Christians, that people will think, well, you can't claim that yours is the only way to truth and Jesus is the only way to heaven because that's t intolerant, that's judgmental, and so on. I would say this. Um, first of all, if I was talking to someone like that, I'd say this. If, you, if someone accuses us of being closed-minded because we teach Christianity is the only way to believe and only way to live our lives, I would help them see the person, help the person see that all religions actually believe this. This is, not a, this is not an inclusive thing to Christianity. All religions believe this. If you join the Muslim faith, truth is exclusive to Muslims. If you join the Mormon faith, truth is exclusive to the Mormons. If you join the Jehovah Witness, truth is exclusive to them. You, you join the Roman Catholics, it's exclusive to them. Hence why I, they, the, Steve wouldn't participate in our wedding. Because he thought that I wasn't speaking truth. Right? And neither was Denise. Why she couldn't take communion. Every religion, and atheism, it's, it's in a way a religion. Not, not because, in, in terms of it's a belief system, I should say. So they will also believe that they have the only way to understand truth. So to be honest with you, if someone tries to marginalize you saying, well, you only believe in truth and you're, you're being intolerant and you think this is not fair, say all religions believe that and so do all people. The only difference is this, is that um, uh, when I speak mine, you just see it as not being true, but you're doing the very thing you accuse me of. You're, if you don't accept my view of Christianity, you're actually being intolerant. <laughs> so you're actually accusing me of the very same thing you're guilty of which is intolerance, because you won't accept my view. But all, all people, like all religions, actually believe they, have, they hold the uh, essence of truth. So Christianity is not unique. So don't apologize for Christianity saying, oh, I feel bad because I feel judgmental. Just say to the person, listen, every religion believes that, including atheism. So therefore, don't, don't apologize for that. The second thing, though, is if you're accused of being judgmental and intolerant, help them see that they are as well. What I mean by this is that if we have non-Christian friends that hold a different view than us, they are actually extremely grateful that truth is exclusive in other categories of their life. My friend Jason Belange, who goes to Pine Ridge, many of you know him, him and I had a coffee the other day and he talked about it's tough at the fire hall because of all the guys that disagree with him on how life is supposed to work as a Christian. And I said to Jason, just help them see that actually um, they all love truth. And they believe truth is exclusive in their own lives. As a firefighter, your life depends on it. If there's not a structure and an order and a truth of how to put out a fire and all the safety precautions, you expect everybody in that department to actually live by those truths to keep you alive. And if you break those laws, there'll be punishment and consequences, maybe even get fired from your job. So I said they actually love the fact that truth is exclusive when it comes to protecting you as a firefighter. They love truth being exclusive when it comes to the traffic laws on the streets that red means red, yellow means yellow, green means green on the traffic light. 
they're extremely grateful when their child goes to the doctor and they, they know that the, the medication on the label says exactly what it's going to do in relation to what the ailment is of your child. It keeps your child alive. A pilot is grateful that the air traffic controller holds the keys to truth in terms of who comes in an order when they land the plane. All non-Christians love the fact that truth is exclusive. They live by those things every day and their lives depend on it. Help them see then that if, why can't it be in the areas of spirituality then that truth can be exclusive as well? Why can't it be? If it's true in every other area of life, why does it all of a sudden disappear when it comes to spiritual beliefs? And here's the reason. The reason this is because if you have to admit that Jesus Christ is the truth claim, that means you have to submit your life to Jesus Christ. And it's because of the prideful people we are and the sin in our lives, we don't want to be, we don't want to surrender our lives to a, 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 a God, to God. That's why she says, embrace the true power of I am. It means I can take care of this on my own. I don't need a God. And God says, no, no, no. If I'm truth, that means you need to commit your life to me and let me dictate how things work in your life. And I use dictates the wrong word. Let me, let me guide you through how to work this through relationally. So anyway, so Jesus' claim that truth is only found in him is only narrow and that it doesn't leave a person with the ability to manufacture their own truth. I'll say that again. Jesus' claim that truth is only found in him is only narrow in that it doesn't leave a person with the ability to manufacture their own truth. That's it. So that's just a philosophical way of uh, understanding Jesus' claims. So let's finish the text off here. I want to give you one more illustration of religious hypocrisy at its best. Pick this up from 38 through 40. And when he had said this, he went out against the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. And Barabbas was a robber. It's interesting that John records him as a robber. And no, and no doubt he was, and I don't disagree with that. But Mark 15:7 gives us a very interesting picture of Barabbas. And I didn't, it's funny, you read the Bible and things just go over your head until you need to know them, and then it's like, whoa, I get this now. This is massive when you see the implications of this. Look what it says in Mark 15, 6 to 7. Now at the, at the, not the feast, the feast. At the feast of, no wait. Yeah, feast, not feast. Now at the feast of Pilate used to release for them one prisoner whom they requested. The man named Barabbas who had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. Okay. You remember the movie we watched at my house? Uh, just a few of you came to months ago. And if many of you have seen it, that movie with the Roman uh, soldier that uh, follows the disciples around and becomes a Christian. What was that called again? Risen. Risen. Yeah. Remember the opening scene? There's zealots, Jewish zealots, fighting the Romans. And the Romans come in and absolutely crush them. That's the opening scene of the movie. Well, Barabbas was part of an insurrection group. Which means then that he was fighting against the Roman authorities in the land. And he was trying to basically squash Roman rule. That was what he was part of. So when he was in jail, he was going to be crucified for insurrection against Caesar. And trying to be basically take the kingship away from Caesar and, and Governor Pilate. Right? He's an insurrectionist. He's a zealot. He's a revolutionary kind of guy. Okay. Now, watch this for hypocrisy. What was Jesus' charge in Luke 23? He's disobeying Roman law and trying to be an insurrectionist. The very charges they want Pilate to kill Jesus for are the very charges they want Barabbas released for. 
<laughs> you see the irony and the religious hypocrisy again? Kill Jesus for this, but release Barabbas for the same thing. The only difference is Jesus is completely innocent and Barabbas is fully guilty. Once again, hypocrisy in religion at its best. A double standard. No care for, for um, moral purity. Only care for ceremonial purity. And it's unbelievable. That's something new I learned in the Bible this week in my studies. I was a student of the Bible this week and it was awesome to learn these things. Alright, so lesson one. I, there's different ways I could take the lessons. I went down one path. In all religion, ceremonial rituals and purity will always take precedence over issues of morality. I've always struggled, not totally struggled, but kind of struggled to define religion compared to Christianity. This really helps me this week. If I'm ever talking to somebody, I'll say, here's the difference between you and me in terms of religion and Christianity. In religion, all you care about is ceremonial purity and rituals and a way to get right with God through your church's design. But you don't really care about issues of morality. And the thing about Jesus, all he cared about was issues of morality. That's all he cared about. If you love me, you will... Get baptized. No. Nope. Uh, do penance. No. Nope. You'll fast. No. Nope. You'll pray X amount of times a day. No. Nope. You'll obey me. I'll know if you love me by the way you live your life. It's an issue of morality. Jesus was sinless. That's why we can put our faith in him to save us from and be resurrected. It was his morality that gave us the right to be resurrected with him. Not his purity in terms of the ceremonial cleansing by him participating in certain Jewish laws. It was because he was sinless against God's law that we get to be resurrected with him. So again, in Christianity, it's all about a relationship with God, not about rules and regulations. And religion will always divorce and make ceremonial purity precedent over morality. The result then is lesson two. In all religion then, hypocrisy will be a prevalent way of life. If you're religious, hypocrisy will be evident in your life. Because it has nothing to do with the way you live, and nothing the way, to do with the way you live uh, in relation to one another, or to other, and yeah, and, think, and your own morality. Because all you have to do is abide to the rituals of the church to get right with God again. That's why the IRA in Ireland, like, you know, when they had all the bombings between the Catholics and Protestants and all the fighting in the IRA was involved, these guys would bomb each other and go to church and make, get penance for that, that Sunday. They go back on the streets and plant a bomb again in the streets. I mean, <laughs> it, it mattered nothing. It was all about penance they could do. And so on and so forth. That's what, in the Catholic Church, that's how the Re Reformation broke out with Martin Luther. They started selling indulgences. In other words, if you had sin in your life, you could buy indulgences from the Catholic Church to make yourself right before God. You could pay your way out of sin by financial donations to the church. That has nothing to do with the relationship with Jesus Christ. And again, we see this, I love it, in the examples from our passage, the false trial. It had nothing to do with morality. It's all hypocrisy. Not entering the praetorium had all to do with hypocrisy, nothing to do with the relationship with God. Not in, and then Barabbas being released and charging Jesus with the same, with the same thing. It's all, it's all crazy. Did you know that in Islam, did you know that the, they have Ramadan, which is a time of fasting uh, every year? Did you know that the grocery stores make the most amount of money during Ramadan than any other period of season in the, within the Muslim community? Why? Because they fast 
right, according to the law. But what they do is they go and buy huge amounts of food and gorge themselves in between fast times so that they're not hungry during the fast. Not, maybe not all Muslims do that, but I read, it was uh, this. I, I read uh, the guy, this guy named uh, Mark Gabriel. His name was used to be something else. He changed it to that when he moved to North America. Uh, a university professor at Cairo who taught the Quran. He taught me that in his book. The, the Muslim stores make the most amount of money during Ramadan because they gorge themselves. So it's not about fasting. It's about, it's about the ritual and, and obeying the Quran. It has nothing to do with the relationship. So if you ever go to fast in private life, don't gorge yourself and gorge yourself and gorge yourself and do a fast and then go back and gorge yourself and think, oh God, aren't I awesome? You say, I don't even care about what you did. You might as well have just ate properly and I don't even look at that. Alright, finally. Genuine truth is only found in Jesus Christ. You're not going to find it within yourself. You're not going to find it within the world. Any truth proclaimed out of the world is just borrowed truth from God. If you go to a counselor for something and they tell you something that's true from Scripture but don't put a passage in a Bible verse after it, it might be true, but it comes from God. They didn't make that up on their own. And again, we talked about philosophically how to defend truth as a Christian. Because just saying in our culture, well, Jesus said truth was truth and we believe Him. That's not going to probably cut it in our culture, the way it's, we're so intolerant to, to uh, Christianity. We have to think of other creative ways of, of, of speaking about truth. And, and uh, I like to take the philosophical approach with uh, dealing with logic on truth um, in one way. And again, there's many ways you can do it. And um, I'm not an expert. Listen to Ravi Zacharias if you want training on how to do that.